Hey guys, it's Rachel Bourne from the Social Anxiety Solutions team, and I'm here to present to you part two of Tom Woodfin's interview with Dr. Robert Glover, the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy and Dating Essentials for Men. And these are two awesome interviews. Um, really, it was one long interview, but we cut it up into two because there's a lot of great content and um, really a lot to absorb, um, but very entertaining. and. I found it very valuable personally, not realizing so much that um, you know I was a nice girl, and I think there's a lot to this, and I, this is really worth digging into if this is something that you're dealing with, or maybe you're on the other end, and um, you know it, it's useful information. In this interview, Tom and Dr. Glover talk about things we mistake for love and why that is. Um, some things that you know we may have somehow paired together, like this, this means that I'm loved, uh, this means I'm lovable, and it not really being based on reality. And that's something uh, definitely worth looking at. Letting go of, of um, bad patterns, letting go of bad relationships, and letting in what you actually want in your life. So if you have that same repeat, same bad pattern, the same bad uh, relationships or, or uh, personalities coming into your life, that is something to address and take a look at and break up that pattern because if you're not getting what you want and you keep inviting uh, the same negative traits into your life, that's something you can do something about. You want to address your own unique story, your own unique needs, so we get into that. Establishing boundaries to invite love, even though that feels like something counterintuitive if you're a, if you're a nice guy or a nice girl the value of boundaries, um, the painful outcomes when you don't have boundaries, you know, maybe you're taken advantage of, or maybe you are very cautious about uh, bringing people into your life. You know, there's a number of, of negative reactions that you can start to have because people will start using you and taking advantage of you. How to fearlessly follow the boundaries that you set, so you can't just set boundaries and then, you know, just pick and choose when you want to use them, you know, follow your own boundaries that you set, uh, kind of the integrity of that. Recovering from nice guy syndrome, so what's the outlook, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the outlook look like for you? Not riding in the middle management as the nice guy, so definitely kind of relate to that one. Uh, you know, not, not really bringing your A game, like doing just enough to not rock the boat, uh, but maybe not really stepping out of your comfort zone and being your best potential and, and how you can actually overcome that and bring your A-game and live your, live your full potential. Address the looming fear of conflict. So this is a big piece for people that are nice, you know, fearing conflict, fearing confrontation. And so actually addressing that and how to do that. Uh, how to eliminate the drama from your story and really kind of take the sting out of your uh, relationships and the sting out of the stories in your life and um, what you can do to stop contributing to, to the drama um, in your life and really uplift it. Um, where you can go for more help and support on this topic. And then in conclusion, breaking through challenges like social anxiety and not identifying yourself as being a socially anxious person and like how to break out of your comfort zone. So a lot of really great content here. If you missed the first one, go back and listen to that one first and come back here and um, leave your comments and uh, enjoy.
what do you think the relationship between boundaries and something like compassion or if you so if you if you have good strong boundaries and you can really then uh, it's almost like the opposite of neediness i'm able to to give without I would say compassion, a good definition of it is I'm able to give without needing anything in return. It's like I'm just pouring good energy outwards. And there seems to be a lot of power in that as well. It seems like there's a almost like a personal power to be enjoyed from from that level of um well that, that kind of level of compassion, I suppose, or that, that level of being able to hold your own boundaries and know what's okay and what's not okay and who you are. Um I don't know if there's a question to come from that. Well, but I, I tell you what, I, I actually have two, I have two answers to go to your non-question. Okay, all right, great. Uh, I'm, I'm a pro at this. I'm a pro at giving answers. Um, so let, let, let's, let's kind of put boundaries over here for a minute and kind of mm. back up just a little bit to something you said that, that I wanted to say something more about. It goes back to what we were talking about to the not needy. And then we'll come back to the boundaries because I agree with what you're saying about them. Mm. Um, Another piece that I've really been looking at a lot um, just recently in my own life personally, but also um, seeing it with other people, and a lot of it goes back to this piece I was talking about of the cooperative reciprocal systems, is that a lot of us, to to rip off an old country song, uh, go looking for love in all the wrong places because we're mistaken what love is, okay? Mm -hmm. And... And, you know, without, you know, going way off a field of trying to define love, most of us get mistaken about what is love. And usually the mistakes we make about what is love usually go back to our childhood, go back to our family of, of the inadequate ways that our parents loved us. Now, so remember, going back to Scott Peck's definition of road less traveled, that the way that parents instill a sense of lovableness in a child is by being attentive responding to their needs in timely, judicious, and I add consistent ways. That is what makes a child feel lovable and valued. Now, Peck says this, and I agree with this. Uh, I've been a marriage and family therapist for over 30 years. I've worked with a lot of families. I've raised kids. Um, And, for example, you can tell a child, I love you, you know, a thousand times a day. And if if their needs are not met in a timely, judicious, uh, and consistent way, the, the words will mean nothing. They will not feel loved, right? You can tell your child, you can tell a child, oh, you are so amazing, you're so great, you're so special. You can tell them that a thousand times a day. But if, you know, their needs are not met in this timely, consistent, judicial uh, way, they're not going to feel loved. It's, it's, the words and, and the feelings won't connect. Hmm. So what I think happens is we go out looking for love and we, we get mistaken what it is. We think somebody wanting to have sex with us is love. Right. Or somebody wanting to tell us their problems is love. And especially These are true for nice guys because I know I thought if a woman wanted to tell me her problems, I was valuable. Uh, you know, I was special. Or if she you know, wanted to have sex with me, I was special. Then I came to find out, no, women will tell their problems to anybody. And you know, <laughs> or, you know, a woman wanting to have sex with me has nothing to do with my lovableness. So we might go looking for appreciation or affection or validation or success or, you know, have a great body or make a lot of money, thinking all of these things translate into love. But they don't. Um, You know, they don't fill the bucket in any consistent way. But we think they should. 
So which means we just got to keep trying to do those things that will make us feel lovable. You know, losing weight will never make another person love you more. It, but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you think, well, if I just lose weight and get in good shape, right. then I'll be more loved. No, you, you don't get any more loved by losing weight. Um, but we think we, or if I, you know, if I just get that promotion or if I just make enough money or if I drive enough car, a nice enough car, I'll get more love. Or if I just listen to enough women talk about their problems or enough people want to have sex with me, then I'll feel loved. But then you find out you don't, right? Mm. So my sense is going back to these, us consciously creating these cooperative reciprocal systems that once we start doing that, we can actually start asking, well, well, what are some of the basic needs and wants that I have? It's not about love. It's about basic needs and wants. And mm-hmm. so, for example, you mentioned sex and affection. Well, okay, what can I do to increase, you know, my, the frequency that I have good sex? Or what, what can I do to be, you know, put myself in a situation to receive physical affection? We actually start asking ourselves those questions and taking steps that, that will help make that happen. But if we just focus on, well, if I just get laid, then, then everything will be okay. And yeah. It actually never works that way. But the more we're filling up all those buckets and not mistaking affection for love or sex for love, but if we're consistently meeting our needs in a way that feels valuable, we don't get so dependent on needing the sex or needing the affection. But another piece, and this is part of the boundary piece that we'll segue into, is that if if we never invite affectionate people into our life, we're not going to feel much affection. If we never invite people who like sex and like having sex with us into our life, we're not going to get much sex. And I, you know, it sounds so maybe simple and logical, but as a nice guy, I spent most of my adult life inviting women into my life who didn't like sex and trying to get them to want to have sex with me. I grew up in a family that was amazingly non-affectionate. My mother just turned 84. My father's been dead for 10 years. Um, And my mother is probably the least affectionate human being I know. Uh, (laughs) And I I, I try to be around her as much as I can. I live a couple thousand miles away, but she had a stroke back in November, so I try to visit her fairly frequently. Um, I give her hugs all the time. I tell her I love her all the time. I send her text messages and say, I love you. I send her little hearts. Um, and, and I get such a kick out of my wife because my wife, who is the most affectionate human being I've ever met, mm-hmm. you know, will even acknowledge, no, your, your, your mother isn't very affectionate. Your, your mother <laughs> doesn't. But she said, but I watch. Every time you hug your mother, she loves it. And every time you say, I love you to your mother, she says, I love you back. And so I've just let go of any covert contract and I I just give affection freely Mm. to my very non-affectionate mother Um, and and just know that, okay, what I did is because that felt normal when I was a younger person to be around non-affectionate people is that I tended to recreate that in my life and then wonder why nobody ever was affectionate with me. Well, because I kept inviting people into my life or not who weren't particularly affectionate. And when I decided that, okay, I like affection. I like people who like to hold hands and kiss and say, I love you and hug and, you know, be affectionate. Then all of a sudden I started inviting those people into my life. And as I said, my wife is the most affectionate human being I know. 
And it's, mm. it's just her language of love to receive and express physical affection. And it's like, I'm in heaven because I love it as well. But I had to invite somebody into my life that was actually physically affectionate. If I kept inviting people like my mother into my life, I'd keep thinking, what's wrong with me? How come nobody wants to be affectionate with me? Yeah, but it has nothing to do with my lovableness. So we'll go back, fill your bucket up with all these resources and invite people into your life who want to give to you in the way that you want to receive and then work on whatever issues you have around receiving, which I've had to do as well because I'm not a very good receiver. It it makes me anxious or feel guilty when people do nice things for me. I've had to consciously work on that. Right. Is that something that touches the the kind of the the unworthiness core? Like I I don't deserve this kind of love or this kind of affection. It's like maybe I really want it and I really crave it, but then when I get close to it, then I start to, all of these walls shoot up, like maybe I, I'm not worthy of this kind of affection or worthy of getting even the things that I want. Well, there can be a lot of layers to it, I think. A worthiness is one. It's not so much the card I play emotionally. Um, I think my cards around something like that, getting my needs met, are more like, oh, uh, if you give to me, I'll owe you something. Um, All right. Or if if I have needs, that makes me too much like my father, who was a self-centered ass, and I don't want to be a self-centered ass, so I'll try not to have needs. Um, so I got value out of being needless and wantless. So now, because I don't have needs and wants, you should value me because I'm not you know the self-centered ass. So it's not so much for me that I feel worthless. That is true. I know for a lot of people and we all have our own stories that get played out, but we have to address those stories. So, Mm. so for example, um, when I, you know, in therapy years ago, when I realized, okay, I'm I'm not a very good receiver. And I'll give you a couple of examples of a couple of practices that I I worked on. One is probably 20 years ago uh, when I was in my second marriage. And that's when I started working on my nice guy issues. Uh, I, I was the giver, you know, the whole covert contract. I was giving yeah. gifts and nice things to my wife. And I remember one year I gave her a, a teddy bear for Valentine's Day. And she didn't seem to have, you know, strong response to it one way or another. And I asked her, well, did you like the teddy bear? And she said, well, did you, did you get that for me or get it for you? Did you give it to me for me or for you? And I had to think about it. And I thought, well, I did put a lot of time into it. I looked and searched for the perfect teddy bear. I thought you would really love it. You'd really be appreciative of me. And I said, I guess it probably was much more for me than it was for you. And she goes, well, that's that hose. That's that needy hose. And because of that needy hose, I just needed her to love it and appreciate it because I worked so hard to find the perfect teddy bear. Um, Yeah. And she said, so because of that, I don't know. I can't really feel anything about it. So uh, we were we were in like a therapy group at the time, a couples therapy group. So we, we talked about that. And, and so out of that process, I made a decision to go on a giving moratorium. So for one year, you know, I talked about this with my then wife. For one year, I did not give her any gifts at all. No surprises, no Mother's Day cards, no birthday gifts, no Christmas, nothing. And every time I had the impulse to like buy her something or give her something or do something for her, I had to buy myself something or do something for me or give myself something. And that, you know, 
That may sound like a crazy assignment, but it transformed me in that then my giving became much more loving and judicious, not just caretaking like, love me, love me, love me, because I gave you all this great stuff. And it started filling my own bucket up. I am one of my own cooperative reciprocal systems, right? I take charge of filling my bucket up. If I need something, I get it, right? So that that helped me practice receiving by actually me giving to me rather than giving to others. Um, uh, another experience I had, um, one after I got divorced in, in like 2003 and started dating, um, I dated a woman for a while. I, I met her because she sold me shoes. So she worked in a, a, a nice department store. And um, we started dating. She came over to my apartment one day and I'd, I'd done some laundry and left my clean clothes out on my couch. And she just walked in the door and just started folding my laundry. And I said, wait, 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 you don't need to fold my laundry. Stop. She goes, oh, <laughs> I, I she goes, I actually like folding clothes. I'm really good at it. She says, remember, I, I work in uh, retail fashion sales. I fold clothes all the time. She says, I'm good. And I said, uh, okay. I thought, okay, wait a minute. She wants to give. It makes her feel good. I need to practice receiving. So I let her fold my laundry. And so after that, consciously, every time I did laundry, I left the clean clothes out on the couch. As knowing <laughs> as a gift to her and as a challenge to me. That was hard to do, actually. It was hard to leave the clothes out, kind of like, okay, my clothes are here. <laughs> and she never, she never, like, why do you do that? She liked doing it. She said, I won't put them away, but I'll leave them in little stacks here, like on your couch or your bed. And I said, mm -hmm. that's okay. I won't put them away either, because every time I see those stacks, I feel loved. Mm -hmm. And I did. I felt loved, but I had to let her do that. Right. Right. Yeah. If I didn't let her do it. I wouldn't get that sense of hmm. That feels good when I look at those little stacks of neatly folded clothes. That was her expressing love for me. But it's a kind of a, a love that she's expressing that she feels good to do. It's not like because the the kind of expression you were talking about before, and I think this is a, an important distinction to make, is that when you so like when you bought the teddy bear, it's like that was your way of expressing love but you, you needed something in return for it yeah. it wasn't just like you did it because hey this is great and i can i can give this and i want to do it and i don't really care if she likes it or not it's like i'm i really really want her validation or approval whereas the girl folding the clothes is like she just loves folding clothes and wants to show her affection that way mm -hmm. um, and she's not looking exactly for a compliment or anything like that and as you see the difference, one's a covert contract, one isn't. One's freely given with no strings attached, one has lots of strings attached. Yeah. And so the point is, is if we want to experience love, we have to practice receiving. We have to practice letting mm -hmm. people in, letting people love us, which we can segue then into boundaries, um, and which is a great subject. And I did not... I did not even know what a boundary was till I was in my 30s, in my second marriage, and already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy before, <laughs> I, ever, before I'd ever heard the term boundary. And I, I mentioned that when I started working with, in therapy, going to therapy, um, to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife appreciate me more. Mm. The very first session I went to with a therapist I worked with for a while, very first session, she taught me about boundaries. She put a little string out on the ground, started talking about personal space and, and how boundaries work. And it's like, man, did she like just know I needed that? Or did she do that with like every client in the <laughs> first session? But I did need it. And what I tell people around boundaries, 
personal boundaries aren't about trying to get anybody else to be different. They're about getting us to be different. And healthy boundaries actually invite other people into higher consciousness. They're not just a matter of saying, stop, or don't do that, or you know, whatever. And the most important piece for me that I teach people around boundaries is that boundaries are what allow people to get close to us. Now, for example, Interesting. I, I tell people, I'll come, I'll come back and give an illustration of that. I tell people, you're an adult. You get to be the decider of who comes into your space, what they get to do while they're in your space, how long they get to stay, when it's time for them to leave. You are the, as an adult, you know, you're the gatekeeper of your space. That's what adults do. Children don't do that because they're little and everybody else is bigger. So the big people get to do whatever they want to the little people. And mm -hmm. since we were all little people at one time, we grow up being boundaryless because nobody ever taught us. You can say no, you can say stop, you can say here's what I want. So, and because if it wasn't what the big people wanted, they'd say, shut up or spank you or smack you or ignore you and do what they wanted to do. Yeah, whatever. So when we get to be adults, we have to learn to set boundaries. Now, I tell people boundaries are like, you know, if you're driving in your car, you're on a highway, they are the stoplights, the stop signs, the yield signs, the, the speed limits, the, you know, the, 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 the lines or the markers on the road. They are the things that allow a lot of cars to coexist in close proximity without crashing into each other all the time. Okay? Mm. Boundaries are a good thing. They, they, help, they help manage how people can coexist with each other. So, for example, boundaries are what allow people to get close to us. Because if you think about it, if you don't have boundaries, if you have no consciousness of personal boundaries, um, your choices are either to let people come in and do whatever they want to you, which could be abusive or they might use you or hurt you, or you got to build really big walls to keep them away from you, or you have to become really unavailable and socially isolated. Those yeah. are you know, basic three choices. Let people hurt you, build big walls that don't let anybody get close to you, or be socially isolated. Those are your choices. But boundaries allow people to get close to you because you, you can decide, yeah, those people, I don't want them so close to me, but this person, I do. This person, they can get real close to me. I'll, I'll get naked with this person or I'll reveal myself to this person. Mm -hmm. But even with this person, I'm not going to let them hurt me or scold me or be critical of me or shame me. If they do, I'll need to say to them, hey, no, you, you don't get to shame me or you don't get to be critical of me. Or if you keep doing that, you won't get to hang around me. Or even like, okay, I've hung around this person for a little while now. I need some space. I need my own time. I need to go hang out with some other people. Or I need to go work. You can say, okay, it's time for my – that is us using our boundaries to like direct traffic to where we can let people close, let them in. We can move closer, move further. Um, you know, we have groups of people around us, one person. We can be alone. All of those things, and, and there's a fluidity to it that you don't have if you're just yeah. letting everybody come in and abuse you or if you just have a big wall built up or if you're just isolating yourself and avoiding people altogether. So the boundaries mm -hmm. are and, – and, and it may take a lifetime to really get good at setting them. I'm, I'm still learning how to, get, how to set them well after 25 years of practicing. <laughs> but they are beautiful in that they do let people get close to you and 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 let you feel safe enough to be vulnerable and open with people no it's interesting it, it kind of takes me to a, a metaphor i heard once of something like the kids can play in the playground 
because they have a, a wall around the playground. It's like the safe zone. It's the container that they can go in and, and just do whatever they want. And they know that, you know, the outside isn't going to come and consume them or swallow them. I think yeah, I've, I've heard that same metaphor and I love it. They, I, I, don't know the exa- I don't know if any of these examples you hear are ever accurate, but it's like, you know, there's a playground with a fence around it and the kids right. played in the entire playground. They, they'd walk right up next to the fence. Yeah. There was a busy highway out there, you know, people walking by, but they felt safe. And mm-hmm. somebody thought, well, kids don't need fences. Fences are bad for kids. So somebody came and took the fence down on the playground. And then the kids all played real close to each other in the middle of the playground and never ventured out. <laughs> because, and whether that's a true story, I, I, I was a preacher for eight years. And so, I, you know, preachers tell lots of stories that may or may not be true, but they make a point, you know. So, um, yeah, we people do feel safe when we have boundaries. Mm-hmm. And people... You know, a lot of times working with nice guys, when I talk about boundaries, nice guys have this fear. Well, if I set a boundary with my girlfriend or my wife or my mother, then they're going to have this big negative reaction. Um, They might. Yeah, they might. um, But often they don't. uh, And sometimes they push against it or resist it a little bit because it's new. It's unexpected. And once they get used to it, they go, oh. Yeah, that that does make sense. You know, mm. I shouldn't I shouldn't just drop in unannounced, or you know, I shouldn't tell him he's a worthless excuse for a human being. You know, maybe I should <laughs> stop doing that. Um, and sometimes people do just keep pushing through them, and um, I call them professional boundary invaders. And my advice is, if over time you start setting clear, loving, conscious, inducing boundaries, and people like keep attacking you, like you're doing something wrong, like you're victimizing them. For having a boundary that says no, stop. Um, I, I suggest you don't hang around those people, and that's part of setting boundaries as well. Is deciding there's certain people on this planet that don't make your life better, and you're yeah. better off not hanging around them. And unfortunately, sometimes those people are mom or dad or a sibling or a person you're married to. But sometimes <laughs> it is better to get away from those people. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that this thought about boundaries because I think one of the things um, the way we're talking I can relate it very much um, to the dynamic between like order and chaos or something like that where on the outside of the fence there is all kinds of chaos and on then there's a little bit of order that kind of keeps it neat and tidy and one of the things that you tend to find with people who have good boundaries and strong boundaries is that they just feel solid it's like you know where you stand with them. There's not this, yeah. this kind of amorphous like, well, am I safe here? Am I, if I push down here, do I have something to stand on? And it's just like maybe that's where this feeling of compassion can emanate from them or you just feel a sense of, I don't know, there's some sense of solidarity or like they're, they're honest, they're truthful. Um, and I think this is something that nice guys typically struggle with quite a lot um, because of the shame and fear of and if, if I do this, if I set these boundaries, maybe I'm not going to be loved in the way that I want to be loved or something like that. I, I think you, you, I think it's a really good analysis on your part that um, having those boundaries, having our reciprocal systems, valuing ourselves, taking good care of ourselves, really opens us up to love more deeply to have greater compassion. Like, for example, I, 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 I hear this frequently when people find out I've written a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, you know, <laughs> that, I, that, that I teach men to be not nice. Um, and people go, 
but you actually seem like a nice guy. You know, you seem, you know, like a decent human being. And I said, well, <laughs> I, I would hope that that is your impression of me, is that I'm a decent human being. I, you know, I hope that as you're just experiencing me having a conversation or walking the planet, that your impression is that this person's a decent human being. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the distinction I make between that and the nice guy is, goes back to the nice guy's covert contracts, to his toxic shame, to his giving to get, to his trying to be something he's not, to be loved, to hiding things about him. That's the nice guy in capital letters, capital N, capital G. But I would hope that doing what I call nice guy recovery will make you more loving, more compassionate, more open, more approachable, mm. more generous, um, and 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 just improve who you are. Now, I, I hate to even use that word because yeah. I when I, I, about two years ago, my my publisher said, well, you know, we want to put out an updated version of No More Mr. Nice Guy. And they said, do you want to, you want to revise it or add anything? I said, no, not really. I'll just write some more books. And mm. I said, but, but let, let, let's just like clean it up, you know, clean up any typos and, you know, anything. I'll write uh, a, a new, um, a new dedication. And how about I write a forward for it? And so in the forward, I wrote about what I'd learned in the last 15 years, both in my own personal life and working with nice guys. And I concluded the forward that, um, really something that I saw even more clearly when I wrote the book 20 years ago, that recovering from the nice guy syndrome is not becoming a different person. It's not about becoming a better person. Uh, it's not about becoming a more lovable person. It's about becoming more you. Yeah, it's about, it's about, about discovering you, embracing you, loving you, you know, putting you out there into the world, warts and all, imperfections and all, human frailties and all, and loving every every bit of yourself. So um, I, I would hope that as people are doing the nice guy recovery, it's not like, and, you know, ironically, when, when I was shopping the book to get it published 25 years ago, a lot of publishing companies said, oh, we like the book, but our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book, especially one that tells them they're kind of a loser. And I said, you, you don't know the men I work with. The men I work with really do want to be good people. That's, that's why they're trying hard to be good because they, they want to be good people. Unfortunately, it's coming from a paradigm that says I'm flawed and broken and unlovable, so I got to be good. Um, and so like a lot of nice guys, when they first get the book, they go, oh, yeah, I get that being a nice guy doesn't work. Now, if I become an integrated male, then I'll be loved and liked and get my <laughs> And And it takes a little while to realize no, let's just work at being ourselves. Let's just work mm-hmm. at being who we are. Not everybody's going to like us. You know, it's still going to be our job to make sure we get our needs met. Um, we're not going to have a smooth problem, free life. But if, if we can learn to like us and love us and just present that person to the world, that person's going to be trustworthy. That person's going to be authentic. That person's going to be honest. That person's going to be generous. That person's going to be open to love and giving of love. And, um, you know, that's a beautiful person. Yeah, it's, that's, this is the kind of people we need more of in the world, it seems. I think one of the – so you talk a little bit in the book about nice guys not fulfilling their potential, and it sounds like what you're talking about then is like there's a there's a potential you that you could be, and um, if you work through this stuff, you could be more you, which is kind of what you're you're here to be anyway. 
and you can get rid of all of the stuff that's not you and all of the stuff that's kind of holding you back and you being essentially you um, or the most you that you could be is kind of like nice, uh, kind of like uh, fulfilling your potential. Yeah. You know, when, when I wrote the book, the, the last chapter in the book kind of hits on that. And that was actually, you know, after um, my, my agent who took the book on said, I really like it. I think it needs one more chapter. So we added that last chapter. And then actually while, um, while the book was in process about to be published, it was published by Barnes and Noble, who at that time was tried to publish books. Now they don't even sell books because they just went bankrupt and got bought out. But anyway, back then they, they were the big deal. Um, and so they, they had me write a class. They said, we want you to write a class, an eight week online class based on no more Mr. Nice guy, but don't just rehash it, do an application of it. And then you can teach it online on their online university. So I taught, I, I developed while the, you know, the book was about to come out. I, I was working on developing this class and I still teach it to this day um, called nice guys. Don't finish last. They rot in middle management. <laughs> and, got, and the premise is that nice guys are often good at being good because we're pretty conscientious and we want mm-hmm. approval. So we're, we're, we, we, we do often well enough, but we don't usually like exceed and, and just flourish and blossom mm-hmm. because of a number of things, seeking people's approval. Okay. Uh, people don't usually accomplish great things while they're playing to the crowd. You know, they, they, they accomplish great things when they're true to themselves and they bring their A game. Um, our fear of, of risk, of looking foolish, of making a mistake, of doing the wrong thing, that can get in the way. Um, that need for external validation. Um, our caretaking, where we're constantly you know, tending to everybody else and not focusing on our passion and purpose. And, and a lot of it just comes down to it's really scary to live up to your full potential. It's, it's scary. It's kind of rare, rare. Yeah. And, um, and nice guys tend to want to keep doing what feels safe and familiar. So doing this nice guy work, and, and, I, and I'm still doing this, and I'm still seeing it, this in my own life. Like I say, at 63, I'm, I'm watching my life continue to blossom and flourish um, as I get out of my own way, as I, I start just creating what's true to my heart and, and my inspiration. And I see my life keep getting better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing more books. Um, financially, I'm doing better. I seem to have more love in my life. I have lots of great adventures. Mm-hmm. I have lots of, of blessings in my life. And I think a lot of that comes because I've let them in, number one. And number two, um, I've been bringing my A game. I, 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 you know, I've, I've faced mm-hmm. a lot of fears and, and um, I, I've created a discipline for myself and a support system that supports me and holds me accountable for living up to my potential. It's, it's a commitment I've made that I'm not going to let my fears and my self-limiting beliefs and my anxieties kind of subvert me from making a difference in the world. Uh, I know that no more Mr. Nice Guy has made a huge difference in the world. I, I know that, that many thousands of people have, have had changed lives because of it. And I've got more books in me that, that need written. Well, what if my fear gets in the way and I never write another book? Okay, that's fine. But when I recognize that I'm, I'm here, you know, perhaps with a purpose or passion, I don't get real, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word, metaphysical about all of that. Um, but I seem to have a certain gift and ability. And if I'm not using that, 
and, and yeah. just bringing my A game to that, I, I'm cheating me, I'm cheating my family, I'm cheating the world. Yeah, so, um, it's going to consume I, you and eat you from the inside. Yeah, it, it, and it will. And I couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing. You know, I get up, I write, I, I have my connections, I have, I have all my reciprocal cooperative systems that bless my life. Um, you know, I teach, I do seminars, I do what I love and I think it makes a difference. And I would be, I would be cheating the world if I wasn't fully embracing and doing what I love and what I was put here to do. Hmm. Well, the thing that you mentioned about, um, the rarefied air and like being fully you and bringing fully you to the, the world is, it's a, it is a, a scary thing. I think people are, are very much afraid of that. And I think there's that very, um, well-used maxim of like it's not the darkness but it's the light inside of you that you're afraid of mm -hmm. something like that and i think one of the things that well in, in your book there was another one of these lines where i was like oh god <laughs> and it, i think it was the uh, nice guys are wimps and this is something that i've really tried to to kind of counter my whole life so um just a, a brief bit about my history I, I grew up and i felt very soft when i was young like i, I didn't feel like i was strong or brave or anything like that and so as I grew up then I moved into mixed martial arts and I um, started uh, doing kickboxing and things like that because I wanted to try to overcome this you know and, and feel more strength more power and you know be tougher than my the the, the demons that I was fighting inside my my head yeah. uh, um, well physically it kind of worked out okay but still inside there was this um this feeling of like I'm just I'm really afraid of conflict. Like I'm really afraid of confrontation and physical stuff. Now I'm getting to the point where I could maybe handle it a bit better, but still inside, like the things that terrified me were like lack of like not being approved of these kinds of things. And so yeah, reading this line of like nice guys are wimps. That was another one of those ones where I had to just, <laughs> I had to come back to it a second time. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just, just absorb that, receive it. And, you know, let it, let it naturally do its work. It's okay. It's okay to kind of do that. Um, and, and what if we could actually even just accept that? And, and yeah, let it, right. Because I, I know at least one place in the book, um, I mean, like I said, this was years and years and years ago. But I still remember um, there's, I, I, I describe a scene in the book with, with my second wife, Elizabeth, who I was with when I wrote the book. Um, we'd had this big fight. I remember we were, we were like in the bathroom off our master bedroom and, and like, you know, and she went off on me, which she had a tendency to do and called me all kinds of things and including a whip. Mm. And, um, and, and she left and she came back. I, I remember I stayed in the bathroom. I was kind of crying and watching my, blah, 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 you know, and she walked back in and, and, she did something that she almost never did in 14 years of marriage. She apologized. That was not her strong suit. And um, she, she said, I'm sorry for saying those things and for calling you a wimp. And I just looked at her and I said, actually, that was the most honest thing that you said. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm in here crying my eyes out. I, so I think maybe you were right. You know, I, I, I can be a wimp. So I, I'm like you. I don't like conflict. Um, I think probably the last two or three relationships I've been in with women that as my mother got to know them, my mother seemed to like to reveal things about me as a child. And <laughs> she, she would say, she's told all these women, you know, Bobby never did like conflict. And I thought, well, who the fuck does, you know, <laughs> no, I don't like conflict. Why? I mean, can't we just talk about it and get it done? Why do we have to have conflict? 
And, you know, again, because my dad was pretty conflictual and my mother always kind of walked on eggshells to make him happy. And I did as a kid, too. Um, and so, no, I'm, I'm not big into conflict. Um, I, I'm not a fighter by nature. I'm not an alpha personality. Um, my, my wife, bless her heart, you know, grew up in eight of ten kids in poverty in Guadalajara, Mexico. Dad was an alcoholic. Her older sister beat her literally regularly until she was like 16 and told her if you ever do it again you know i'll i'll i'll, I'll beat the shit out of you she she had to fight with neighbor kids she's been violated and molested and and i mean just tough and and yeah. she's she's a tough cookie she had to be tough um you know and she she goes to exercise class every day she's a gym rat she has my thigh um, she's a lefty. I, I won't start a fight with her. Um, <laughs> she's, she, in every way conceivable, she's, she's tougher than me. And, um, you know, and I tell her, you know, in some ways she's my role model for where the places I need to toughen up and mm. need to be willing to have conflict and stand up for myself and, and deal with things. But she also says I'm her role model for teaching her how, how to be calmer and more patient and, uh, more open hearted. And, I love her for the ways that she is, but she kind of doesn't like the fact that she has to be so tough. And she loves me for being this, this kinder, gentler type person. And I'm thinking, well, I should be tougher. Well, how about if we just accept, okay, this is how I am. Um, I'm, I could be kind of a wimp, you know, I, can I love that about me? Can I love that part of me that would rather not have conflict? Can I love that part of, about me that, uh, doesn't go looking for a fight? Can I love that part about me that would still f stand up and go to the floor for anybody that threatened my family? I would. Um, but I would try to find some other solution first. That's me. Okay. So, we can love all parts about ourselves, even those parts that might have a negative connotation, like, like being a wimp. Mm. Um, okay. You know, and I know I can stand up when I have yeah. when it's the time well, to stand up. You see, so there's a, there's a few, a few things that I'm thinking about that. And, uh, one of them I was wondering uh, when you were talking about the kind of the, the needs and the wants and um, getting nice guys to identify their, their feelings because a lot of times they're kind of out of touch with their feelings and then um, I, and I wondered did you use any kind of linguistic structures like uh, I know nonviolent communication is good at um, helping people to identify what they're feeling and what their needs are that are kind of driving these feelings and also it doesn't it, it kind of like promotes a, a consciousness that doesn't necessarily label things as like well, this guy's a wimp or this guy's good or this guy's bad and then once you kind of arrive at that consciousness then it's like yeah it's, it's fine to be a wimp because it's just the word what is really happening underneath is that i'm feeling afraid and i have needs for security and support or safety or something like that i was wondering if you used yeah. any kind of you know, I, I, I really honestly just came into contact with uh, um, nonviolent communication. I, I'd, I'd like heard of it at times in the mm -hmm. past, but it's really only been the last couple of years that, um, I, you know, really kind of had it explained to me more in depth. And, and I mm -hmm. like it as a communication style. Um, I, 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 think, I think words can be really important. And, and how we use them. So, for example, what I typically do when I'm working with people, I, I tell them to pay attention to their emotionally laden 
language. Yeah. Because the, the, that like emotion is charge. Around. Yeah, that has a charge to it. So, for example, you know, a guy says, well, you know, she, she shot me down. You know, mm. well, no, she had low interest in going out with you. You know, she said no to your request to go on a date. She didn't mm. shoot you down. But mm-hmm. your, your language of she shot you down, um, you know, all of a sudden takes on this real emotional world of itself. Mm. And so oftentimes in, in therapy and in groups, when I'm working with people that have this tendency to use a lot of emotionally laden language uh, and buy into it as, as it, it is the story, it is reality. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll do a little uh, exercise with them and I'll say, okay, I'm going to have you tell me the story of this emotional event, um, usually in which they're feeling kind of negative or done to or victimized. Um, and I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you tell it to me in two ways. Um, the first way is I'm going to have you tell it to me as uh, an editorial the, you know, that you're going to editorialize this story, a lot of emotionally laden language. Um, you know, well, you know, this situation, you know, this guy was being a real jerk and, you know, he went off on this other person and, blah, you know, editorialize the hell out of it. Read, you know, whatever intent or motive into it you want. Then after telling the story with all the emotional language, I said, now tell it to me like a news reporter. Give me the facts, the who, the what, the hair, the where and the how without intention, speculation, motive, just what can be observable in the situation. Um, well, a guy was walking down the street, and he turned around and punched a guy. Mm. That's it. That's all you know. Now, that's a lot different story than all of, you know, the, the speculation and everything. Or, yeah. you know, if we bring it to the dating scenario, you know, the editorial is, you know, you know Robert, you know, bought this woman drinks and he was trying to impress her and he listened to her tell her stories and she seemed really interested in him and she touched his arm a lot and Robert was thinking how great it would be maybe you know if she was his girlfriend and he thought she was really sexy and you know he was doing his best to impress her and you know and this and that and then when he you know finally did ask her out she you know she shot him down and she walked away from him and he left standing there looking like a fool All right. Or the news story is uh, Robert met a woman at a bar. They had a couple drinks together. He asked her out. She said no. And nobody died. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody had died. Nobody had died. Nobody got shot, killed. You know, nobody got drink thrown in their face. You know, she said no. Um, And, yeah, I tell you what, life gets a lot easier Mm. if, you know, or somebody told me recently the way they like to say it is, you know, um, uh, give me the news, not the weather. Uh, Don't give me the weather report. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, if we cut out the weather report and just stick to the news, yeah, shit happens in life. It isn't always what we want. It doesn't always go the way we want. But it's usually not nearly as dramatic as we turn it into be when we make it as being about ourselves. So, okay, you know, Robert met a woman at the bar, bought her a couple drinks. He asked her for her phone number. She said no. Uh, Robert continued to have a good night. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it, it, it doesn't have to be this big drama thing. Right. So, um, so I agree with you. Language can be really important. And if we can learn to drop the drama uh, from our language, we can communicate more clearly. And, and I know I, I had an experience just recently, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, as I said, my, my mother had a stroke uh, a few months ago and, and then had actually gone back in the hospital for a different reason. This was about a month ago. Um, and I thought, you know, 
I'm worried about her. She, you know, when she, when she does reply to my messages, says she's weak, she's not sleeping well. I thought mm-hmm. I, I'm going to go up and just pay her a visit. I, and I told my wife that, about my thoughts and my plans and, you know, she thought that was a good idea. And so I flew up from Puerto Vallarta where I live up to Seattle to spend six, seven days with my mom. And I was glad I went. I think she needed someone to check on her. Her refrigerator was empty. She she wasn't taking very good care of herself. And, and uh, you know, we went for a lot of walks. I put a lot of food in her fridge, you know, and by the time I left, she was in much better shape. Um, but when I got, but while I was gone, my wife seemed really cool towards me. We usually send a lot of text messages, but they were, her messages were fairly unaffectionate and flat. Now, I'm not going to use any emotionally laden words, but I could tell she was distant and something was bothering her. Um, mm. And I watched my tendency to make a story out of that, right? And all I did is I just kept repeating to myself, my wife is not feeling sufficiently loved by me. I didn't make it into a story, well, this or that, or, you know, she was projecting her stuff, or I didn't do anything wrong, or blah, you know, not, nothing. I, uh-huh. My mind wanted to at times, and every time my mind wanted to create a dramatic story about my wife seeming distant while I was gone, um, I just repeated to myself, my wife is not feeling sufficiently loved by me. So when I got back home and we were able to have a conversation about it, I said, you know, it seemed that you were not feeling sufficiently loved by me. And she then told me two things that made her feel not sufficiently loved. I acknowledged both of them that I could see why that would make her feel not sufficiently loved. And I said, I will try to be more attentive to those things in the future. And after a week of her seeming distant, but me not reacting and just asking, Okay, you seem to not feel sufficiently loved. She told me two things. I listened, I acknowledged, and we got through it like in 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, it, that's all it took. And then like, you know, from there on out, she was amazingly her affectionate self and close and physical and hugging and kissing and saying sweet things. It's just like turned like that because I didn't turn it into a dramatic story. I, I, I forced myself to keep it simple. Mm. Yeah, it almost sounds like a, a kind of a, we can get addicted to the drama of it because it's something interesting that's happening. Maybe there's not enough kind of interesting or fulfilling things <laughs> in our lives that are happening. And so you create these kind of dramas so you can just so something's happening so it's not boring. Um, and um, yeah, it, it really sounds like once you break that down or kind of kick that addiction and you just use language you know in a way that is that you're in a better relationship with reality instead of what's going on in your your head it's like you can actually get down to what's happening and it's it's not such a big deal after all that it it amazed me how quickly we got through it and how quickly she wanted to feel close to me again that she wanted to to open up to to you know feelings yeah Yeah. It, it kind of blew me away like wow is that easy? <laughs> you mean if I if I if I can manage my storytelling and projections and story, you know drama a little better, you know maybe we get through stuff a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a work in progress. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we uh, there's so many more things I would love to talk to you about here. Um, I think we're probably running over by a little bit, and I want to kind of make an effort to respect your time here, even though I also want to kind of pick your brains about so many more things. Um, well, you know, we, we can do this again. Yeah, well, I would like that. I, I still have about 
say 60% of the questions that I never even got to I'm spinning off of the things that you were talking about. So that was super interesting. Um, I, do you have any final thoughts or final words to say on anything, any messages you'd like to, to send? I know you just got a new book out um, and that was, I just found that today. I thought it looked quite interesting. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you for, for plugging that. Um, you know, yeah, you know, you, if you're people listening to this, if they're interested in you know, anything we've talked about, sure, check out No More Mr. Nice Guy. My, my new book just came out this month. It's available right now. It's an ebook on Amazon, Dating Essentials for Men. And it came to be written exactly the same way No More Mr. Nice Guy did. When I got divorced in my late 40s, uh, 16, 17 years ago, I didn't know how to date. I had to learn how to date. And I tried to approach it. Uh, you know, by being authentic and real and myself and just learning to let me, this filled up me, mm. attract good people to me. And it's kind of a different concept to what a lot of the dating advice is out there for men. Um, so, yeah, if you know, check out Dating Essentials for Men, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Um, if they want to, you know, come find my website, just go to drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com, or datingessentialsformen.com. Um, no. go, you know, go, go poke around both of them and see if anything looks interesting. Plenty of good material there. Um, is there anything finally that you would say just quickly to, <laughs> I almost forgot that we were doing a podcast for socially anxious people. Is there anything uh, quickly you would say? Uh, to oh, should, the- should, we give, should we give them away before we wrap up? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we talked about no more Mr. Nice Guy stuff for the whole podcast. But <laughs> yeah, if there's something... Um, I don't know if there's anything you would say to them. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff we talked about applies. Well, well, let me just say one thing. Um, Two things. I'll say two things. Um, I I am by nature an emotional introvert. I I didn't know that for most of my life. I I get recharged in isolation, spending alone time. But I do like being around people. But I get overwhelmed and tired easily. in crowds, I actually do better standing up on a stage talking to an audience than mm-hmm. I do in small groups and parties, uh, mainly because of the control factor. I have more control when I'm up on the stage. Um, and, and so I guess the point I want to make is that most people, I work, I've worked with a lot of people, especially you know when I work around dating concept, worked with a lot of people who identify as being socially anxious, um, introverted, um, and, and they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, mm. And, and it's kind of like one piece that I see with people that identify in this way. It almost becomes like their burden to bear, kind of like their identity, their, 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 right. their, 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 almost their mask that they wear. Well, I'm socially anxious, therefore, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm introverted, therefore, fill in the blank. Kind of like, well, because I've got this thing, I can't really be expected to, you know, like do these other things. Like, right, right. Almost like a protection. Like, like talk to people or go to parties or, you know, walk up and introduce myself to someone or whatever. And, and, the, and I don't want to minimize it because it's real. But the point is everybody has to challenge themselves in life. Hmm. And maybe some people have more challenges than others. Probably I'm, I'm, I'm probably, you know, uh, maybe I don't have as many challenges as, as another person. Somebody maybe that's in a wheelchair or, you know, has, you know, something else going on. I, everybody has challenges. So instead of saying, well, because I have this thing, I can't, um, maybe say, okay, I have this thing and it's a challenge and I, and I can't, I can try, I can work at everybody. Everybody has to lean in 
to, to their challenge. Everybody, if they really want to, to be themselves and have what they want in life and live up to their potential, has to get out of their comfort zone and feel uncomfortable or anxious periodically. Everybody. And so the people say, well, I've got this thing or I've got that thing. Okay. All right. You do. I, I'm a wimp, by the way. I've got that thing. <laughs> and I still have to challenge myself. I still have to deal with conflict sometimes, even though it, it, it makes me pretty anxious. So, yeah. But I still have to. Okay. So I, I would say don't let how you've identified yourself be you. All right. Mm. It's, just, it's, just a, it's just a piece. It's just a thing. Don't let it be you. Um, get out of your comfort zone anyway. And then the second piece I'll add is don't do it alone. Um, mm. Anything we try to do alone is going to be a lot more difficult, a lot more challenging. Surround yourself with good people. Get a coach, get a therapist, get a wing buddy or, you know, wingman, get a buddy, get, you know, get, get, you know, go to a 12 step program, you know, go to meet up, go, you know, take a Dale Carnegie course. Go. Don't try to do it alone. Go connect with other people and, and practice these life skills um, with other people and, and maybe with people who've, who've are a little bit further ahead than you and they can teach you what they've learned along the way. So don't try to figure it out alone. It's, that's way too much work. Uh, go, go get good help. Yeah. Oh, powerful words there. Well, it's been an absolute privilege for me to speak to you today. So thank you so much. Um, you've definitely affected my life in massively positive ways that you, you, unaware of and you know thousands maybe millions of people out there as well so you know thank you so much uh, robert glover for being on the podcast today it's been a real pleasure thank you for the invitation I, I had a great time and look forward to doing it again excellent me too all right take care awesome well i hope you enjoyed that you put yourself last for a really long time and now it's time to start putting yourself first and you'll start to see that people will follow suit and the people that don't shouldn't be in your life and you can let them go or set up boundaries and you know just just create a better life for yourself because you do deserve it and you know by by actually taking a look at these things and not pushing them into a corner you can actually start to improve your life and pursue your purpose your dreams and your passion so stay tuned next thursday every thursday come back for more and have a great week thanks all right hope you enjoyed that now, if you want to overcome your social anxiety as quickly as possible without having to forcefully face your fears, I have something really unique for you. I'm giving away my free social confidence starter kit. Now, this kit is something quite special. It consists of my 22-page ebook and an 11-part video course. And through it, you'll learn about the most effective technique that I've used to overcome my own social anxiety. And this is also the, my primary technique when helping my clients to become calm and at ease in social situations. And by the way, it's not deep breathing or changing your thoughts or being mindful or you know, facing your fears, as I said earlier. And while it is free, you know, free often translates to crap. <laughs> this is the furthest thing from it. It's a very powerful resource. I've put quite some time and effort into putting this together for you. And uh, to give you an idea, I recently received a comment from someone saying that he reduced his social anxiety with 40% using this free starter kit alone. So to get this starter kit now, go to social-anxiety-solutions.com forward slash bonus. All right. Looking forward to connecting with you in the next episode.
Bye for now.